Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 47. The Mat Maker. It was a cloudy, sultry afternoon. The seamen were lazily lounging about the decks, or vacantly gazing over into the lead-colored waters. Queequeg and I were mildly employed weaving what is called a sword mat for an additional lashing to our boat. So still and subdued, and yet somehow preluding was all the scene— and such an incantation of reverie lurked in the air that each silent sailor seemed resolved into his own invisible self. I was the attendant or page of Queequeg while busy at the mat. As I kept passing and repassing the filling or woof of marlin between the long yarns of the warp, using my hand line for the shuttle, and his Queequeg standing sideways, ever and anon slid his heavy oaken sword between the threads, and idly looking off upon the water, carelessly and unthinkingly drove home every yarn. I say, so strange a dreaminess did there then reign all over the ship and all over the sea, only broken by the intermitting dull sound of the sword, that it seemed as if this were the loom of time, and I myself were a shuttle, mechanically weaving and weaving away at the fates. There lay the fixed threads of the warp subject to but one single, ever-returning, unchanging vibration, and that vibration merely enough to admit of the crosswise interblending of other threads with its own. This warp seemed necessity, and here, thought I, with my own hand, I ply my own shuttle and weave my own destiny into these unalterable threads. Meantime, Queequeg's impulsive, indifferent sword, sometimes hitting the woof slantingly, or crookedly, or strongly, or weakly, as the case might be, and by this difference in the concluding blow, producing a corresponding contrast in the final aspect of the completed fabric. This savage's sword, thought I, which thus finally shapes and fashions both warp and woof, this easy and different sword must be chance. I chance, free will, and necessity, nowise incompatible, all interweavingly working together. The straight warp of necessity not to be swerved from its ultimate course, its every alternating vibration, indeed, only tending to that. Free will, still free to ply her shuttle between given threads, and chance, though restrained in its play within the right lines of necessity, and sideways in its motion directed by free will, though thus prescribed to by both, chance by turns rule either, and has the last featuring blow at events. 
Thus we were weaving and weaving away, when I started at a sound so strange, long-drawn, and musically wild and unearthly, that the ball of free will dropped from my hand, and I stood gazing up at the clouds, whence that voice dropped like a wing. High aloft in the cross-trees was that mad gay-header, Dashtigo. His body was reaching eagerly forward, his hand stretched out like a wand, and at brief, sudden intervals he continued his cries. To be sure, the same sound was that very moment, perhaps being heard all over the seas, from hundreds of whalemen's lookouts, perched as high in the air. But from few of those lungs could that accustomed old cry have derived such a marvelous cadence as from Tashtigo, the Indian's. As he stood, hovering over you, half suspended in air, so wildly and eagerly peering towards the horizon, you would have thought him some prophet or seer beholding the shadows of fate, and by those wild cries, announcing their coming. There she blows, there, 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 she blows, she blows. Where away? On the lee beam, about two miles off, a school of them. Instantly, all was commotion. The sperm whale blows as a clock ticks, with the same undeviating and reliable uniformity, and thereby whalemen distinguished this fish from other tribes of his genus. There go flukes, was now the cry from Tashtigo, and the whales disappeared. Quick, steward, cried Ahab, time, time. Doughboy hurried below, glanced at the watch, and reported the exact minute to Ahab. The ship was now kept away from the wind, and she went gently rolling before it. Tashtigo reporting that the whales had gone down heading to leeward. We confidently looked to see them again directly in advance of our bows. For that singular craft, at times evinced by the sperm whale, when, sounding with his head in one direction, he nevertheless, while concealed beneath the surface, mills round and swiftly swims off in the opposite quarter, this deceitfulness of his could not now be in action. For there was no reason to suppose that the fish seen by Tashtigo had been in any way alarmed, or indeed knew at all our vicinity. One of the men selected for shipkeepers, that is, those not appointed to the boats, by this time relieved the Indian at the main masthead. The sailors at the fore and mizzen had come down, the line tubs were fixed in their places, the cranes were thrust out, the mainyard was backed, and the three boats swung over the sea like three samphire baskets over high cliffs. Outside of the bulwarks their eager crews with one hand clung to the rail, while one foot was expectantly poised on the gunwale. So look the long line of men-of-war's men about to throw themselves on board an enemy ship, but at this critical instant, a sudden exclamation was heard that took every eye from the whale. With a start, all glared at dark Ahab, who was surrounded by five dusky phantoms that seemed fresh-formed out of air. Chapter 48 Part 1 The First Lowering The phantoms, for so they then seemed, were flitting on the other side of the deck, and with a noiseless serility were casting loose the tackles and bands of the boat which swung there. 
This boat had always been deemed one of the spare boats, though technically called the captain's, on account of its hanging from the starboard quarter. The figure that now stood by its bows was tall and swart, with one white tooth evilly protruding from its steel-like lips. A rumpled Chinese jacket of black cotton funerally invested him, with wide black trousers of the same dark stuff. But strangely crowning him was a glistening white-plated turban, the living hair braided and coiled round and round upon his head. Less swart in aspect, the companions of this figure were of that vivid complexion peculiar to some of the aboriginal natives of the Manilas, a race notorious for a certain diabolism of subtlety, and by some honest white mariners supposed to be the paid spies and secret confidential agents on the water of the devil, their lord, whose counting-room they supposed to be elsewhere. While yet the wandering ship's company were gazing upon these strangers, Ahab cried out to the white-turbaned old man at their head, "'All ready there, Fedallah?' "'Ready,' was the half-hissed reply. "'Lower away, then, do you hear?' shouting across the deck. "'Lower away there, I say.' Such was the thunder of his voice that, spite of their amazement, the men sprang over the rail. The sheaves whirled round in the blocks with a wallow, the three boats dropped into the sea, while, with a dexterous off-handed daring, unknown in any other vocation, the sailors, goat-like, leaped down the rolling ship's side into the tossed boats below. Hardly had they pulled out from under the ship's lee when a fourth keel, coming from the windward side, pulled round under the stern and showed the five strangers, rowing Ahab, who, standing erect in the stern, loudly hailed Starbuck, Stub, and Flask to spread themselves widely so as to cover a large expanse of water. But with all their eyes again riveted upon the swart Fidala and his crew, the inmates of the other boats obeyed not the command. "'Captain Ahab,' said Starbuck. "'Spread yourselves,' cried Ahab. "'Give way, all four boats. Thou, Flask, pull out more to leeward.' "'Aye, aye, sir,' cheerily cried little King Post, "'sweeping round his great steering oar. "'Lay back,' addressing his crew. "'There, there, there again. "'There she blows right ahead, boys. "'Lay back.' "'Never heed yonder, boys, Archie.' "'Oh, I don't mind him, sir,' said Archie. "'I knew it all before now. "'Didn't I hear him in the hold? "'And didn't I tell Cabico here of it? "'What say ye, Cabico? "'They are stowaways, Mr. Flask.' "'Pull, pull, my fine heart's alive. "'Pull, my children, pull, my little ones.' "'Drawingly and soothingly sighed Stubb to his crew, "'some of whom still showed signs of uneasiness. "'Why don't you break your backbones, my boys? "'What is it you stare at? "'Those chaps in yonder boat? "'Tut, there are only five more hands come to help us. "'Never mind from where. "'The more the merrier. "'Pull, then. Do pull. "'Never mind the brimstone. "'Devils are good fellows enough.' "'So-so, there you are now. "'That's the stroke for a thousand pounds. "'That's the stroke to sweep the stakes. "'Hurrah for the gold cup of sperm oil, my heroes. Three cheers, men, all hearts alive. "'Easy, easy, don't be in a hurry. "'Don't be in a hurry. "'Why don't you snap your oars, you rascals? "'Bite something, you dogs. "'So-so, then, softly, softly. "'That's it, that's it. 
long and strong. Give way there, give way. The devil fetch ye, ye ragamuffin, rapscallions. Ye're all asleep. Stop snoring, ye sleepers, and pull. Pull, will ye? Pull, can't ye? Pull, won't ye? Why in the name of gungeons and ginger cakes don't you pull? Pull and break something. Pull and start your eyes out. Here, whipping out the sharp knife from his girdle. Every mother's son of ye draw his knife and pull with the blade between his teeth. That's it. That's it. Now ye do something. That looks like it, my steel bits. Starter. Starter, my silver spoons. Starter, marling spikes. Stubbs' exordium to his crew is given here at large because he had rather a peculiar way of talking to them in general, and especially inculcating the religion of rowing. But you must not suppose from this specimen of his sermonizings that he ever flew into downright passions with his congregation. Not at all. And therein consisted his chief peculiarity. He would say the most terrific things to his crew in a tone so strangely compounded of fun and fury, and the fury seemed so calculated merely as a spice to the fun, that no oarsman could hear such queer invocations without pulling for dear life, and yet pulling for the mere joke of the thing. Besides, he all the time looked so easy and indolent himself, so loungingly managed his steering oar, and so broadly gaped, open-mouthed at times, that the mere sight of such a yawning commander, by sheer force of contrast, acted like a charm upon the crew. Then again, Stubb was one of those odd sort of humorists, whose jollity is sometimes so curiously ambiguous as to put all inferiors on their guard in the matter of obeying them. In obedience to a sign from Ahab, Starbuck was now pulling obliquely across Stubb's bow, and when for a minute or so the two boats were pretty near to each other, Stubb hailed the maid. Mr. Starbuck, larboard boat there, ahoy! A word with ye, sir, if ye please. Hello, returned Starbuck, turning round not a single inch as he spoke, still earnestly but whisperingly urging his crew, his face set like a flint from Stubbs. What think ye of those boys, sir? Smuggled on board somehow before the ship sailed. Strong, strong boys, in a whisper to his crew, then speaking out loud again. A sad business, Mr. Stubb. Seethe her, seethe her, my lads. But never mind, Mr. Stubb, all for the best. Let all your crew pull strong, come what will. Spring, my men, spring. There's hogsheads of sperm ahead, Mr. Stubb, and that's what ye came for. Pull, my boys. Sperm, sperm's the play. This at least is duty, duty and profit hand in hand. Aye, aye, I thought as much, soliloquized Stubb, when the boats diverged. As soon as I clapped eye on him, I thought so. Aye, and that's what he went into the afterhold for, so often, as Doughboy long suspected. They were hidden down there. The white whales at the bottom of it. Well, well, so be it. Can't be helped. All right, give way, men. It ain't the white whale today. Give way. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG pod wherever you get your podcasts. VP Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.